Have you ever stopped to think about how important communication is? Communication, talking, speaking, writing, emailing. It's one of those things that is so common that we might not think about it often. Think about this. We are saved because God communicated His Word to us. He sent others to evangelize us. In other words, to communicate the gospel to us. I believe that money does not make the world go round. Communication does. Because it is so essential, communication or a break in communication is why relationships often fall apart. Bad communication, no communication, miscommunication. What's even worse is when there is dishonest communication. Things come to a standstill when you cannot trust someone at his or her word. As Christians, our communication should represent who we are in Jesus Christ. Our words should reflect and define a people that are reliable and trustworthy. In other words, we are to be men and women of our word. In so many ways, your testimony, your ministry, your service are only as good as your word. And so this morning, I want to talk about that a little bit. Turn with me to James chapter 5, verse 12. We're covering just one verse this morning because James holds an entire different topic in just this one verse. James chapter 5 and verse 12. He says, But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. This morning in this one verse, I want to give you five descriptive reasons to stop swearing. Five descriptive reasons to stop swearing oaths. Don't worry, there's a lot, but the first and the last will be very short. And what I want to do is go through these five reasons and spend a good amount of time at the end of our sermon this morning to give you a practical list in regards to what we would have just seen. First, the first descriptive reason to stop swearing is the significance. The significance. He begins the verse by saying, above all. He introduces this topic by saying, but, above all, literally, before all. Now, this does not mean that what James is about to say is more important than anything else. As we have seen him do many times, he is using a literary device that shows that he is transitioning to a new topic. But even in this transition, he chooses words that we must not ignore. He is signifying a new topic as well as the conclusion of his letter, but he does so with words that tell us that what he is about to say is very important. To disobey what he's about to say is no more sinful than any other sins he has mentioned in this epistle, but definitely something we must listen to. And so our first descriptive reason to stop swearing is that it is significant. Not more significant than other issues addressed so far, but significant enough, and this is important, to include it in God's Word. And as we will see, not for the first time. The second descriptive reason to stop swearing is the specificity. The specif specificity. 
He addresses my brethren. Again, we have seen him use that phrase, my brethren, or my beloved brethren, to indicate again that he's changing topics. But we need to look at this because it's important. We know that there are those in James's original audience who were attending the church, but not true believers. This is arguably true of every church in the world even today. But his main audience, of course, are true believers, Christians, brethren, would refer, of course, to brothers and sisters in Christ, the family of God, Christians. Now, we're talking about reasons to stop swearing, and one of the key reasons is because we are Christians. As Christians, we naturally obey the Lord, and here the Lord is saying, Christian, do not swear oaths. But think about that phrase, I'm a Christian. When we say we do or don't do something because, quote, I'm a Christian, that is an incredibly loaded statement. As fellow brethren, we recognize what that means. But at the same time, we have all experienced a bit of wariness when other people we meet say they want to do something because, quote, they are a Christian, because we want to make sure they mean what we hope they mean. Specifically, we want to make sure they are not slavishly obeying a set of rules with a legalistic attitude rather than out of a true love for Jesus Christ. The reality is, as believers, we will all at times do things out of a sense of obligation. Obligation to the Lord, obligation to the church, obligation to the unbelieving world around us to whom we represent Christ. But I believe the Apostle Paul is a good example for us. If you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 15, where Paul describes his motivation along with the others who are in ministry with him. He says, For the love of Christ controls us. Why? Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he, Jesus, died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Paul is talking about why he ministers. And in the same way and with the same mindset, this is why we should minister. Not to earn points, not for reputation, but because the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ for what he has done for us and our love in response to that controls us. Turn back a little bit to Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. This is a verse that I've mentioned uh, quite often, I believe, in the last few weeks. Romans 12.1 says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves or present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. The last phrase your spiritual service of worship can be translated your logical service or your rational worship. In other words, in light of the salvation we have in Christ, which is what Romans chapter 3 talks about leading up to Romans 12.1, it stands to reason that we will serve in response to that salvation. Service, worship, they are the natural, logical, and rational response to the salvation that Christ affords us. Here's the point. 
if you are a believer, you have the highest calling and the supreme privilege any man can have, and that is to represent the living God. And just as His words are always true, so must ours be. As representatives of the living God, we speak in such a way that reflects not only His words, but His character from which those words flow. Yes, we are imperfect. Yes, we are sinful. Yes, we fail. But let us not lose heart. Let us keep trying and do our best through our words to represent the same reliability and truthfulness that is inherent in the one we follow. Nobody else can do this, only the redeemed. Nobody else wants to do this, to be truthful to the point that it hurts, only his children. And although we are all responsible for our own faith and individually accountable to God and his word, we do this together. We are a family. We are a church. We are brethren. That is the specificity. This is specifically for believers who alone by the power of the Holy Spirit are capable of total honesty. Well, let's move on to our third point, which gets into the issue at hand and we'll spend most of our time here. The third descriptive reason to stop swearing is the sin. He says in the middle of the verse, do not swear either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath. So here we start getting into the heart of the matter. What is it that he is forbidding here? We know this is sin because the phrase do not swear in the Greek is a command. It is an imperative. The very definition of sin is to violate any command of God, and here we have a command. And James also uses the tense that prohibits swearing, but also calls for a stop to the existing pattern of swearing. Although an indirect point, we have seen this before, we are again given great hope in the possibility of repentance. If this is an area that you are struggling with, that you can stop, you can repent. But let's talk about swearing because it may not mean what you think it means. When he says do not swear, he is not talking about what we typically think about when we use the word swear in American English in 2023. This is not profanity. This is not four-letter words, taking the Lord's name in vain, or vulgar speech. To be clear, those are wrong and sinful. They're just not what James is forbidding here. To swear is to make an oath. It is to make any sort of promise or commitment beyond just speaking your words. And understand when we make a promise or when we swear... Make an oath especially and invokes another person or object or words to guarantee the reliability of what you are saying. In James's time, they would swear by heaven or earth or even by God as a way to emphasize that what they are saying is actually true. What they're saying they're going to do is what we would call a promise. The reality, even though it is forbidden here, is that oaths are seen all over the Bible. They were a normal part of biblical times. For ancient Israel, there were times when they were commanded by God to make oaths. Listen to Exodus 22, verses 10 through 11. 
This is in the midst of all of the rules God is giving them through Moses. He says, if a man gives his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep for him, and it dies or is hurt or is driven away while no one is looking, an oath before the Lord shall be made by the two of them. And that is just a guarantee that what had happened was legitimately um, would be paid back or that it wasn't some sort of foul play. In fact, the Old Testament even attests to the fact that God swore oaths. Deuteronomy 4.31, For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which He swore to them. Deuteronomy 7.8, Because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which He swore to your forefathers. Talking about promising to bring them out from under the hand of Pharaoh and Egypt. But see, what had happened over time among the Israelites and the Jews is that because of this normal practice in ancient times, the Jews started using oaths too much. And as we know from so many other aspects of life, when you use something too much, you start taking them too lightly. They lost their value. They were used to convince others and make one sound reliable, but they often meant nothing. Oaths were even sworn in the midst of that person who was swearing an oath, knowing he wasn't going to do what he was just swearing to do. We see this weakening of one's word already happening in Old Testament times. Jeremiah 5.2, And although they say, as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. Malachi 3.5, I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely. We see that it was not just common practice to swear oaths, but it became common practice to swear falsely, to swear an oath and then not fulfill that oath. And this is the pattern of sinful man. To take something that is good and beneficial or even common and mundane and abuse it and turn it sinful. In order to give weight to an oath, the name of someone or something greater than oneself was called upon. You know this. You've heard people say, really? No, really. I swear to God. God as my witness. And for the Jews and the Israelites, invoking the name of God meant that the one making the vow was saying, I allow God to witness the truthfulness of this statement and be the avenger if I am lying. Now, if you were a religious person like the Jews were, this would end any argument. And so you could see how even in the midst of a debate, an argument, uh, uh, fighting over the, the details of a contract, they would swear to God and that would end it. Hebrews 6.16 even attests to this. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. And when you swear to God for the Jews, there's no one higher you could appeal to, so that was it. That was done. Swear to God. You can't do anything more. So my word is bond. Now, people would swear to God and say, may God avenge you if I break my promise, break my oath, that's a big deal. So they stopped swearing to God and they would swear to things like heaven and earth. Now the Jews, who again swore oaths as part of everyday life, then in the early church brought this practice into the church 
when they became Christians. And so the misuse of oaths and swearing became commonplace in the church as well. We know Jesus himself had an issue with this. I invite you to look at Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, where he almost says the exact same thing that James says, or more likely vice versa. James says almost the exact same thing that Jesus, his half-brother, said. Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37, look at what Jesus has to say. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But, and we see Jesus doing this a lot, right? He takes the Old Testament law and says, but I'm going to make it even more broad and more specific to the heart. He says, but I say to you, make no oath at all. And here it is, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. And what he is saying is, you Jews start swearing by heaven and earth because you're not brave enough or honest enough to swear to God anymore. Guess what? It's the same thing because heaven and earth belong to him. Turn ahead a few pages to Matthew 23. Matthew 23, we'll look at verses 16 through 22, and in this context, he's confronting the Jewish leaders. Verse 16 through 22 of Matthew 23 says this, Woe to you, blind guides, whoever say, or who say, rather, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. See, the Jews were making distinctions. Well, did you swear by the temple or the gold of the temple? Because if it's just by the temple, you don't have to do what you said you were going to do. See the problem here? Verse 17, you fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men. Which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. They're saying it doesn't matter in modern terms, little kid, if you swear to God or swear on your mother's grave. It's all the same. And so we see the practice here in Matthew 5 and 23 of swearing by something other than God to somehow make it less sinful to break that oath. But again, James says it doesn't matter. Jesus says it doesn't matter. Go back to James 5.12. Notice in the verse, he goes on to say, or with any other oath. And so he extends the prohibition to all sorts of oaths, even if you're not swearing to God or heaven or earth, any sort of oath. Not just the ones James has mentioned here. Now I want to clarify something. As an American citizen, this does not mean that you are not to swear an oath when it is legally required such as in court, 
becoming a U.S. citizen, becoming an official medical professional, or even your marriage vows. Of course we do those. Those are fine. Those are legally binding and necessary. In fact, in James's time, they didn't have signed contracts or legal documents like we have today, so they had to make oaths in this way. But the reality is, as you know, we live in a world of liars and crooks. In a world like this, oaths are sometimes necessary. Notaries are necessary. Signed documents are necessary. We live in a world in which truth is not respected, let alone objectively defined. So swearing is sometimes necessary. What James is talking about, what we are talking about, is being the kind of person who is so trustworthy and so honest that outside of required legal documents, swearing is not necessary. Because people know, if you say it, it is true. If you commit to it, you will be there. And also, what James is talking about, though this won't apply to anyone here, he's also talking about taking oaths or swearing in a way to intentionally deceive or manipulate. Let me put this in modern terms for us. You should never have to say, I swear to God. You should never have to say as a Christian, I swear. Swear on my mother, swear on my mother's grave, swear on my right eye, whatever it is kids do these days. In fact, I have a policy in my home that we don't say, I promise. It shouldn't be necessary. The issue is not just refraining from those particular words, I swear or I promise. The issue is bigger. The issue is always bigger. For the believer, the issue is about the heart and the integrity of our lives, which ultimately comes down to how honest and trustworthy we are. And that leads us to our fourth descriptive reason to stop swearing, the standard. The standard. Don't swear, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no. That's it. Yes. Our yes or our no should be equivalent to anyone else in the world saying, I promise, I swear, I swear to God, I'll sign a document. We should just have to say yes. We saw Jesus say the exact same thing a moment ago in Matthew 5. The principle of letting your yes be yes and your no be no is quite simple. If you say yes, then it means yes. If you say you're going to do it, nobody should question you because of the reliability of your character. If you say that you will not do something, no one should have to look over their shoulder in case you are actually still doing it. As Christians, we are to be men and women of integrity. And men and women of integrity do not need to convince others that they are honest and truthful. They don't need to leave people guessing as to whether or not their yes means maybe or if their no means time will tell. We should be a people who are truthful and reliable to the degree that there is power and certainty in that simple word, yes or no. In other words, we should be so reliable that any other words like I promise, I swear, I'm serious, trust me, or, or anything like that are completely unnecessary. 
Now, that's not to say that because of someone's experience with others in our fickle world that they won't try to get you to say more than yes or no. But you can simply tell them that, listen, you don't need, I don't need to say that to you because my yes is yes and my no is no. You know, every Sunday I have the privilege of meeting visitors to our church. Some before service starts, some after. There are those people who have never, these are all people who have never met me before. But there's a difference between those who meet me before service and those who meet me after. Those who meet me before see my suit, they see a microphone on my face, they might have seen my picture on our church website, and they'll ask, are you the pastor? That's a reasonable question. The people who meet me after service never ask that question. It's assumed I am the pastor because they now know enough about me to know that I opened the sermon or opened the service, I preached the sermon, and more often than not, someone closes the service by referring to me as Pastor Roger. There is no need for them to ask. There is no need for me to tell them I am the pastor. Their experience has given them enough information to figure that out. Are you the type of person that people who know you have enough experience to know that your yes is yes and your no is no? That they don't need to get you to say, I promise or I swear. Perhaps that's the problem. Perhaps some of our friends know us well enough that they need to demand an I promise or I swear because experience has told them that your yes does not mean yes and your no does not mean no. That's the standard. It's very simple. Mean what you say and say what you mean. So we've seen the significance, the specificity, the sin, the standard, and finally, very quickly, the stimulus. The end of verse 12 so that you may not fall under judgment. Once again in his letter, James reminds us of the just demands of God. We have seen God's judgment connected in James specifically to the negative commands several times before in this book. Although not as specific as yes, yes, and no, no, what we are talking about here falls under the larger umbrella of Matthew 12, 36. Matthew 12, 36. Listen carefully. I tell you, that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. Now we know for the believer this is not judgment unto eternal death, but judgment in regard to the reward that is revealed through the burning off of all the worthless and ungodly deeds at the Bema seat. We've looked at that a couple times in James. That which is burned off includes the things you do in adherence to the Scriptures, but done without the right heart attitude. Attitude, and James now includes not being a person of your word, even well-intentioned. And so before we get into our practical list, let me summarize five descriptive reasons to stop swearing. The significance, not the most important, but still important enough to mention as a standalone issue in the book, in the Scriptures. The specificity, Christians who have the privilege and obligation to reflect the character of God specifically his trustworthiness, his truth, the sin, swearing in the sense of making oaths, the standard, 
reliability and honesty, and the stimulus, the judgment of God. And as I mentioned earlier, I want to close by getting very practical with a list of reasons that some of us may not be reliable. Why for some of us, when we say yes, and maybe we even think, maybe you don't know you're unreliable. Maybe you say yes and you wonder why. They're like, hmm, maybe. Why are you known as unreliable? Or maybe why, even in your recognition that you're unreliable, why are you like this? Now, before I get into this list, I want to give you a few precursors, a few footnotes, if you will. First of all, this is not an all-inclusive list. I'm going to give you six practical reasons. But it's not an all-inclusive, so at the end of the sermon, I don't want you to look and say, no, I don't do any of those six things, and so I must be reliable. Having plain words that are as good as promises is something we all need to strive for and excel still more in. Second, this is going to sting a little. I'm going to get very specific. The other day, some of you were hanging out with my wife, and you commented that you don't really like that I haven't yelled in my sermons in a while. You like the yelling. I don't know if I'm going to yell, but I'm going to get very specific. By the way, on a personal note, it's not that I'm not passionate about what I'm saying anymore. Frankly, this year, my wife and I had just been a little more tired because of a recent medical diagnosis in our oldest son. You may go away after this list walking, well, I know Roger well. Was he talking about me? I don't do that. But the Holy Spirit might be talking to you. I think often we, I know in my experience and people who are no longer part of the church and accusing me of bully pulpiting, which is where you attack a specific person from the pulpit, either directly or indirectly, I've been accused of that. And so they disregard it, and it grieves me that so often these people have disregarded the prompting and conviction of the Holy Spirit, and instead just attack me and ignore it. Finally, final footnote, lists like these are always a temptation to be fuel, to judge others, especially among those who are critical. Evaluate your own heart. As I tell my children, focus on your own heart. Now, reasons that you may not be a man or woman of your word, keep in mind you may not think or you may think that you are a person of your word, but this list may reveal that you are not. And again, all of us can excel still more. The first reason is you're selfish. You're selfish. Think about when you make commitments to do something. When an opportunity is presented, we jump at the opportunity and we often think, I like the idea. I think it will be fun for me. Then when the time comes, I'm tired. I had a hard day at work. I don't feel like it. So I just don't go. You become untrustworthy because you say and do that which, that which fits your agenda and what you think is best and most comfortable to you. This is true, of course, of very personal situations that I think naturally are hard to back out of. If you have a one-on-one -on -one meeting, things like that. 
But I think this also applies to church-wide situations. I said I'm going to get specific, so I'm just going to say it. Men, 50% of you who signed up for men's group only came once or twice. I get that things come up. I get that when you signed up, you knew you had a vacation or whatever it is. But sometimes we think that because it's a large group or a ministry or an online sign-up, we don't have to follow through. But this isn't just about you. This is about family. This is about fellowship. This is about community. We want you there. We need you there. You say, well, it's easy for you. You have to go. You're right. I do. But it's not because I'm a pastor. It's not because I'm the host. It's not because it's my job, which, by the way, it is not. I have to go because I said I would. Now, this doesn't mean, please, don't take this as I'm going to stop committing to things. In fact, I think it's a great practice and discipline to commit to something you're on the fence about so that you will force yourself to go because you signed up. But that's the rub, isn't it? Our culture is so self-entitled these days that committing to something isn't a way to force you to do that thing because our words don't mean anything anymore. We, as representatives of Jesus Christ, have to be different. By the way, one of the best ways and practical ways, everyday ways to gauge how selfish you are is if you are constantly late. If you commit to going somewhere that has a hard start time, the assumption is you are going to be there on time. Again, things happen. There are various reasons that are out of your control. But if you are someone who are always late or almost always late, something needs to change. It could be that you just simply need to change how early you start getting ready to go out or getting the kids ready. It could be that you need to change your priorities or your understanding of time, what you think you can squeeze in in the last minute. It could be that you just need to have a better gauge of how long it takes you to get from point A to point B. Or it could simply be that you need to learn to respect others more. Even before I was saved, I knew that being late showed disrespect for others. Not just the host or the person expecting you, but all those who took pains to be on time. And that leads me to our second reason we tend to be unreliable or untrustworthy. You simply don't love others as you should. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. As many of you know, part of my favorite passage in the Bible. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. As it says nothing about convenience or sometimes it says do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Some of you who are newer to the church have recently commented on how quickly I respond to texts and emails. A large part of why I do this is because of this passage. 
I believe that time is the most precious commodity that we have. I tell my kids all the time, you lose money, you can earn more. You can't get time back. And if I am to consider you more important than myself, then shouldn't I consider your time more important than mine? So why would I waste your time, you who are more important than me, waiting for my response? Many of you have texted me and you get an auto-reply. Auto-reply, I'm currently driving or I'm currently in a meeting. I know it's a little obnoxious. But the reason I have that app on my phone is because I want you to know that I can't get back to you right away. It's not because you're not important to me. It's because it's also important that I don't die texting and driving. The other person I'm in a meeting with is also important, which includes my family. By the way, I always have that auto-reply on on all family outings and vacations the whole time. And if all of that is true, should I not respect you and love you enough to be totally honest and reliable? Sticking to my commitments as best as humanly possible? To love you so much that I will follow through on anything and everything I have said I would do? It doesn't even matter if you care or not. The issue is how I represent Christ with my truthfulness and reliability. God cares. Thirdly, the third reason you may not be reliable, that your yes is not always yes and your no is not always no, is that you're a liar. Stick with me here because this may apply to more of you than you think. Sometimes we get so caught up in trying to be nice trying to be liked, somehow confusing that with testimony. Falling into the pressures of political correctness and not wanting to offend, excusing white lies and social platitudes. And we start chipping away at the integrity of our truthfulness. And as with any sin, the more we get used to sinning in the gray areas that have seemingly harmless results, we delve deeper and deeper into more blatant sins and we aren't even aware of it. Remember, this is about representing Jesus Christ. This is about being who you are called to be. Listen, in Psalm 35 and Isaiah 65, the Lord is called the God of truth. In John chapter 8, Satan is called a liar. Who do you want to be more like? Who do you want to represent? We need to excel still more. Reason number four. I talked about this earlier in the passage, but you don't take your reflection of God seriously. Turn to 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. You know this passage well. It's okay that you used to be a liar, that you used to be dishonest, unreliable, but those are your former lusts, which you no longer have and are no longer to be conformed to now that you are in Christ. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 
Surely all your behavior includes your words, your attesting to those words with your behavior, your showing up, your commitments. Do you guys understand what a privilege it is to be holy because God is holy? There is a, a, an objective holiness and there's a subjective holiness. There's holes in those definitions, but I'm going to use that to help us understand this. It's the same thing with righteousness. We are objectively holy and righteous in the eyes of God because we are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. However, every single page of your New Testament tells us there's a subjective holiness, which is how holy or righteous we are in our pursuit of godliness, our repentance of sin, our pursuit of obedience. You have to understand that your objective stance and position in God's eyes will never change. You cannot lose your salvation. It will not become less. You cannot earn His favor. You cannot lose His favor because your favor is found in Christ and not you. However, because of that, again, not to earn His favor, but because of that, we want to pursue holiness and righteousness Holiness, or to be holy, literally means to be set apart. Now, when we take that within the context of holiness as God is, or as Christians are to be, it means to be set apart from sin, unrighteousness, set apart from the world to God. That's who you are objectively. Do your yes, yes, and no, no reflect that holiness. We have the privilege of representing the character of God. Here's a great prayer. If you're taking notes, write this down. Lord, help me to hate what you hate and love what you love. Very simple. Because that formula equals holiness. Holiness. What we see in Jesus Christ. Right? Loving the sinner. Hating the sin, just to clarify. These are the characters of God, characteristics of God. There's a lot of uh, lofty, uh, verbose definitions of what is an attribute of God. And I really like this one. It's not all-inclusive, but it gets the point across very practically. An attribute or characteristic of God, those are two words for the same thing, is anything... Any characteristic which, if taken away from God, makes him cease to be God. Because that reminds us when people say, well, 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 we're not in Old Testament time. God is a God of love. I can follow any God, and he's going to forgive me. No, he's still a God of wrath. And if you're telling me he's no longer a God of anger and wrath, we're talking about different gods. Let me introduce you to my God, who is patient now, but is angry against sin and is coming again. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, and he's going to come again with a robe dipped in the blood of his enemies, holding a sword. Nothing regarding peace there, okay? So everything that God is, we are to emulate. All of the characteristics. There are incommunicable I'm going into a deep rabbit hole here. But there are incommunicable 
attributes of God, which are non-moral, not immoral. They're not moral characteristics that we cannot emulate. For, the, the, for example, the fact that he is omnipresent everywhere at all times. That's not a moral issue like love and righteous and holy. Okay? We can't, that's, we're not trying to do those attributes, all-powerful, all-knowing, but it is the communicable attributes, the ones that we can have, the ones we can emulate, like truth, justice, love, righteous, holy. So ask yourself, how seriously do you take your reflection of God? In every area of life, but specifically for us this morning, in the area of your words. Fifthly, another reason you may not uh, your yes may not be yes or your no, no. And this kind of fits under uh, being a liar. Fifthly is you use your words to diffuse or manipulate a situation. You use your words to diffuse or manipulate a situation. The classic example of this would be a parent promising something just to get their child to stop arguing or stop pestering even though they know they're never going to give that kid that thing. The flip side of that in parenting would be promising something, or excuse me, uh, threatening a form of discipline that you would never follow through on. Okay? You've driven eight hours, you're at the gates of Disneyland, stop arguing and we're going to turn back. You're not going to turn back. Okay? I will spank you senseless. You don't even know what that means. Okay? Things like that. And you just use those words, which you can't even follow through on, to diffuse a situation, to make peace. But we can do this to each other as well as adults, for much the same reasons as we do with children. Make others happy, calm them down, manipulate them so they're no longer angry, or manipulate them to do what we want. And by your words, you make a promise, but you have no intention to fulfill them, when you make the promise, sometimes you don't even have the ability to fulfill them. You just say it to get them off your back. Or, even well-meaning, to make them happy, to get them out of a rut and a depression. That's not good. I've seen Christian spouses do this to each other. I have seen pastors do this to their flock. I have seen Christians do this to other Christians. Much of this, again, goes back to being selfish and unloving because you just want out of an uncomfortable situation. And the true and truthful and reasonable solution will take too long. And you just don't want to put in the time. On the flip side, on a side note, we need to avoid being people who pressure others to make their yes, yes, or make promises that they don't want to make. Okay? We see this in the small scale. Come on, just go with me. Come on, it's right there. It's not that scary. Just jump. Just, I know you've never been on a roller coaster. The loops aren't that bad. I mean, that's a small thing. But there's other big issues where you're like, really? Come on, promise. Your yes has to be yes. Don't do that. Don't do that. Well, finally, the sixth reason you may not be reliable is because you may not be a Christian. 
I do not say that as some sort of petty accusation to get you to shape up in your Christian life. I say this as a warning and an opportunity. We have to understand that the Bible is clear. Unrepentant, ongoing sin is indication of lack of fruit, which is lack of true faith. And this isn't just the big things like adultery or beating your children, not attending church, not giving to church, not letting your yes be yes. If you are characterized by deceitfulness, then it may be because you are not of the Father who is of the truth. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? On a side note, I need to remind you guys. You guys know my heart. You know where our church stands. You know we are concerned about Scripture and Scripture only. And with that, you understand that I am biblically coming to you with this. There's no other time I have found an appropriate time to say this. So I'm going to say it here, even though I kind of have to shoehorn it in. This applies to all Christians when you became a Christian, but especially members. You stood up here in front of me and the Lord and others committing to praying, serving, and giving financially to the church. Your yes is yes. You made a commitment to the church. And a third of our members don't give a dime. This is a problem between you and the Lord in so many areas. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a privilege to be people who are truthful, who are known to be truthful, even if it bothers people, even if it offends, because we can represent you, our honest, true, and living God. I pray, Father, that you would help us to weed out the areas, whether it's one of these six areas, especially if there are those who are not believers here this morning, that you would help us to repent and turn to you and excel still more. And if we are the people, kind of people who are others don't trust because we're always late or we're no-shows or whatever it is, may we as those recipients be gracious and forgiving and non-judgmental as those of us who may struggle with this excel still more and do better and over time develop a character and a testimony and a Christian living that does not need, I promise, I swear, trust me, because a yes and a no are the same thing. Help us to emulate and model you in this way, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.